Good afternoon on what appears to be a spring day, but I'm told not to let it fool me. I'm Michael Roy, president of Calvin College, and I'd like to welcome you all to the January series for 2013. Please take a moment now before we begin to silence your cell phones and iPads and any other things that you have with you that would make noise. And while you're doing so, we'd like to extend a special welcome today to three of our 38 remote sites. Bradenton, Florida, Pella, Iowa, and my hometown, Seattle, Washington. So shout out to you. We'll be gathering questions today uh, through Q&A cards that are with you and the ushers have, uh, have, have them available. Uh, you can also send in questions via email, uh, Twitter, and also feel free to think of those questions during the presentation and start sending them in. I understand we already have one question. <laughs> so I hope you guys can answer that. Our moderator, Rick Truer, will gather your questions and present them at the end of end if time allows. So okay, having taken care of those housekeeping issues, please pray with me. Our good and gracious God, you have blessed us with minds by which to study and address a world that you made good, a world distorted by our sin, a world redeemed in Christ, a world now awaiting the fullness of your reign. We thank you for the gift of careful thought that you give to us, and we thank you for today's speakers who practice that thinking and gracious interaction and living so well. Give them today clarity of thought and a sense of your peace and presence. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And now Laura Smit, a professor in the religion department here at Calvin College, will introduce today's guests. It is my privilege to introduce to you today both Richard Mao and Robert Millett. Rich Mao needs very little introduction here at Calvin College since he was a member of our philosophy department for 17 years before leaving in 1993 to become the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Since going to Fuller, Rich has continued to write both books and articles, including titles such as Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World, and the recent Talking with Mormons, an Invitation to Evangelicals. He has modeled the sort of civility that he writes about as a leader in various ecumenical and interfaith consultations, ranging from conversations between progressive and evangelical Presbyterians to reformed Catholic dialogue, and now for many years, the evangelical Mormon dialogue. I first met Rich Mao 30 years ago while I was a student at Calvin Seminary after I gave a chapel talk here at the college. In fact, it was here in this room. It may have been at this podium. And he wrote me an encouraging note. In talking to other people about Rich, I've discovered that he does this sort of thing all the time. He pays attention to the regular folks he meets in the course of his day. And when he sees an opportunity to be encouraging or helpful, he takes it. About 10 years ago, he took another such opportunity to be encouraging and helpful to me by suggesting my name to Robert Millett and to his colleagues at Brigham Young University 
as a possible participant in a colloquy that they were hosting on Christian perspectives on salvation in Christ. I went to that colloquy as a representative of the Calvinist perspective, and it was there that I had an opportunity to get acquainted with Bob Millett. Bob has been a professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University since 1983, where he has also served as dean of religious education. He is, if this is possible, an even more prolific author than Richard Mao. Some of his books, and this is only a very few, include Lost and Found, Reflections on the Prodigal Son, Getting at Truth, Responding to Difficult Questions about LDS Beliefs, and most recently, Coming to Know Christ. One of the things I like best about Bob and one of the things about which we bonded was that he loves C.S. Lewis. And he is also the co-editor of a book that many here would find interesting, C.S. Lewis, The Man and His Message, A Latter-day Saint Perspective. Bob has been a leader in initiating ecumenical and interfaith conversations on behalf of the LDS and is the co-founder of the Evangelical Mormon Dialogue. My experience of Bob Millett is that he is a kind and hospitable man who laughs easily, is gracious and forgiving when misunderstood, and is clear and forthright in explaining what he believes. Bob Millett also practices an uncommon civility. So the conversation we are about to hear will be a treat. Calvin College is grateful to Charles and Jan Stoddard for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Richard Mao and Robert Millett. Uh, great to be back uh, and to talk a little bit about uh, this 12-year dialogue that we've been engaged in between a small group of evangelical scholars and a small group of LDS uh, Mormon scholars. Uh, I'm asked regularly, well, how did you get into this? And uh, I just want to mention two of the factors that motivated me to uh, accept the invitation on behalf of Fuller Seminary to co-sponsor this dialogue with uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, the first factor was something that happened to me when I was 15 years old, a kid in New Jersey. I attended a large uh, public high school and was a part of uh, a Bible club of uh, pretty much fundamentalist uh, Christians. Uh, a number of my friends in that club were members of the Riverdale Bible Church in Riverdale, New Jersey. And uh, they were excited about the fact that Walter Martin, uh, who was just becoming a public figure in uh, discussing uh, non-Christian uh, cults, uh, was coming to Riverdale Bible Church for a series of Sunday nights. Uh, one week he would speak on Jehovah's Witnesses, another week on Christian science. He had a great line on Christian science that Christian science is like grape nuts. Grape nuts is neither grape nor nuts, and Christian science is neither Christian nor science. Uh, he had a, uh, one evening on the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, whom he considered to be a cult at the time, but later on decided that they were just confused evangelicals. And, uh, and then uh, Mormonism. And on each occasion, uh, the Riverdale Bible Church uh, made a point of inviting members of those groups to come. Uh, we heard nothing from uh, any of the first three 
But uh, that evening, there were two rows of, of, of Mormons. And after Dr. Martin uh, made his uh, rather negative assessment of Mormonism as a, uh, an evil uh, non-Christian cult, a young Mormon who was obviously designated as the spokesperson for the group stood up and, and challenged some of his interpretations of Mormonism. It became very heated. And there came a moment where uh, the young man, the young Mormon, probably about 25 years old, uh, was so emotional that he finally just said, Dr. Martin, I don't care what you say, nothing that you can say this evening will in any way uh, convince me that I am not saved through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary. And Dr. Martin turned to the audience and said, see how they lie? And at that moment, the young man blurted out, you're not even trying to understand. And I made a vow as a 15-year-old that someday I was going to try to understand uh, what happened that evening and to sort through those issues. Uh, many decades later, uh, in the 1990s, I, I read a fascinating book by a Mormon scholar. Uh, I wasn't into studying Mormonism much, but uh, this book had a fascinating title, Mormon Neo-Orthodoxy. And it was written by a sociologist at Washington and Lee, by a, a traditional and rather conservative Mormon scholar, who in that book at the beginning began to uh, express concern. Now listen to this here at Calvin College. Began to express concern that many of the younger Mormon generation were sounding too Calvinistic. <laughs> and I could not put that book down. <laughs> and he made an interesting observation. He said, when Joseph Smith began formulating the unique emphases of Mormonism in the 19th century, even though they were unique Mormon emphases, they shared certain things in common with the emerging Protestant liberalism of the day, and especially these three things. One is a belief in a finite God. Secondly, a belief in uh, human depravity. And thirdly, a belief in salva salvation by grace alone. And he said that stands in radical contrast to Mormonism, which teaches a finite, uh, I'm sorry, that stands in radical, uh, I'm sorry, finite God, a self-perfectible human being, and salvation by works, which stands in radical contrast to the uh, teachings of Mormonism, uh, the teaching of the Reformation, and especially Calvinism, that God is sovereign, that human beings are depraved, and that salvation comes only by grace alone. And he said, Mormonism has to make a choice. And I thought to myself, if Mormonism is going to make a choice, I'd kind of like to help along the, the Calvinist side of things. And when we had a chance to initiate this dialogue, uh, it became a very important and very exciting thing for me. As we got into our dialogues, we decided to avoid three approaches that had been long uh, characteristic of evangelical treatments of Mormonism. The one is that we weren't going to talk about the possibility of the smoking gun historically, that Joseph Smith plagiarized the Book of Mormon or, or something like that. Uh, secondly, we were not going to get into a simple doctrinal checklist approach, which uh, evangelicals often have, you know, that Jehovah's Witnesses, they 
they don't believe in the Trinity, they don't believe in the full divinity of Christ, but they do believe in the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and so they get like a, a D minus uh, Christian science, uh, about the same. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, they get more like a B minus, and Mormonism is off the charts uh, with an F kind of thing. Uh, and, and, and thirdly, we weren't going to get into a demonization thing, but we were going to engage each other. And people here at Calvin College will certainly appreciate this, that we decided to take what I think of as a worldview approach. And that is to concentrate on questions like this. Who are we? Who is God? And what does it take for us to be reconciled to God? And insofar as we talk about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, uh, how do we understand that atoning work? What's the relationship between faith and works, uh, grace and other ways of, uh, of pretending that we can achieve uh, righteousness? So the basic issues of, of sin and salvation and the uh, nature of God and the grace of God. And that worldview approach was undergirded by, certainly in my thinking, about a, a, a commitment to a, a civil kind of interfaith dialogue. Uh, things that we often haven't engaged in as evangelical Christians. And that means three things, at least. Now, one is that we pay attention to uh, other, the other party's account of what they believe. Uh, there's been a tendency for us to tell Mormons what they believe uh, rather than ask them what they believe and genuinely listen to make sure we have it right. Uh, secondly, that we don't put our best features against their worst features. As a Calvinist, I don't like it when somebody says, oh, you're a Calvinist. How do you understand the execution of Servetus by John Calvin? Or some of the things that the Puritans did in New England. No, I'd rather talk about what our, our best features are. And also, uh, in understanding people that I disagree with, what is the best case that we can make? And what is the best case that they can make? And clearly, to pay attention, attention to their piety. Uh, I talked to a business person uh, last week, an evangelical, very strong Calvinist evangelical, who said to me, you know, my business part partner is a Mormon, and we talk about our, our, our differences, but you know, we pray together when we eat lunch, and when he prays, it sure sounds like he's praying to the same God that I'm praying to. He's talking about the same Jesus uh, whom I follow, and we do pay, need to pay attention to that. Uh, Ezra Taft Benson was Secretary of Education. Uh, Secretary of Agriculture in the Eisenhower cabinet. And uh, during that time, the entire Eisenhower cabinet was invited in 1957 to the Billy Graham crusade. And Ezra Taft Benson, as a Mormon, uh, was so impressed with uh, the hymn, How Great Thou Art, which was just beginning to become known to Americans at that time. And when he became the, uh, the, the head of the Mormon church, uh, he saw to it that How Great Thou Art was put in the, the Mormon hymnal. And uh, we have sung that together. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it, we have to pay attention to the fact that whatever Mormons say theologically, they like to sing, O Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder. And they like to sing, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died take away my sin. We need to take the piety of other groups seriously as well. Um, and also to listen to what Mormons, you know, so many people will, will say to us that, well, they're just telling you the, the nice things that you want to hear, but among themselves, uh, they say very different things. And we need to pay attention to what Mormons say to each other. And uh, we are hearing some things these days that uh, 
that are different than some of the things that we've heard in the past. For one thing, what we're hearing is an increasing redemptive emphasis. Uh, much more talk uh, that at the center of Mormonism is Jesus Christ as the only Savior, and, uh, and, and Jesus Christ who shed his blood as a full payment for sin on the cross of Calvary. Uh, Jeffrey Holland, one of the 12 apostles of the church, uh, preached that very, very strongly uh, to 14 million Mormons around the world a few years ago. And we're hearing more and more of the centrality of Christ and the centrality of the cross. And I think that's a very, uh, very important emphasis that we need to be taken seriously. Um, here's Jeffrey Holland talking about the atoning work of Christ. He says, in a spiritual agony that began in Gethsemane and a physical payment that was consummated on the cross of Calvary, Jesus took upon himself every sin and sorrow, every heartache and infirmity, every sickness, sadness, trial, tribulation, that it's experienced by the children of God from Adam to the end of the world. How he did this is a stunning mystery, but he did it, making merciful intercession, intercession for all the children of men. And Joseph Smith himself gave an orthodox sounding account of salvation matters on the occasion of the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in April of 1830. He says, we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and worship the Father in his name and endure in faith on his name to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior is just and true to all those who love and serve God with all their mights and minds and strength. And we can see in these statements that the, the more Mormons gravitate toward the language of classical salvation theory and theology, the more they also adopt ways of talking about God that echo uh, the classical tradition. It's significant that uh, in his same 1830 address, Joseph Smith articulated a, a, a view of God that sounds very Calvinistic. He says, we know that there is a God in heaven who is infinite and eternal from everlasting to everlasting, the same unchangeable God, the framer of heaven and earth and of all things which are in them. Uh, these are important things to take seriously and to build upon. Mormonism is a, an ever-changing uh, community. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that the difference between those of us who hold to the teachings of the Reformation and Mormonism isn't simply that they have more revealed books than we do. Those of us who believe that the Bible alone is our supreme authority for all issues of faith and practice. Uh, but the under, undergirding their many books is a, a, a firm belief in the, uh, re, re, the restoration, the reestablishment of the prophetic office uh, in Joseph Smith. And that continues uh, today in their views in, in the uh, leaders of the church. And so there's a, a view of a continuing revelation and uh, uh, also a, a, a continuing guidance to the, the saints, to uh, the Mormon community that at different times in their history have emphasized different kinds of things. And it's my own clear sense that uh, in recent years, we've seen 
an emphasis on the centrality of Jesus Christ and an emphasis on the atoning work of Christ and the payment that Christ made on the cross as a, a, a much uh, emphasized uh, set of beliefs and set of uh, convictions within the LDS community. Uh, we've had some wonderful discussions. Bob can tell you a little bit more about it. But we have, uh, uh, we have talked a lot about whether salvation is by works or by grace alone. And uh, my good friend Bob Millett uh, will say very clearly, salvation is by grace alone, that we do not earn our salvation in part or in whole uh, by good works, but our salvation is our, res our, our good works are our response to what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. <coughs> We've talked a lot about becoming gods. And uh, what I've been told over and over again by my Mormon scholarly friends, but also by leaders of the church in Salt Lake City, is that uh, they, they believe there's only one true God who is worthy of worship. No human being uh, will ever be worthy of worship. Uh, and more and more these days, uh, uh, my Mormon friends quote uh, that wonderful passage in 1 John, that we are already the sons and daughters of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when he shall appear, <clears throat> we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. <clears throat> that this is what it means for us uh, to become more and more godlike, and that is to more and more be conformed uh, to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, I find these encouraging developments. It's certainly worth the dialogue, and it's important for us to be listening and talking to each other. And with that, I turn the podium over to my good friend, Bob Millett. Please join me in welcoming him here. What a delight to be with you. Uh, I'm honored to be asked to come and uh, particularly to be with my dear and good friend, Richard Mao. Uh, actually, my second or third visit to this campus, not too many years ago, I had the opportunity to be here and meet with members of the religion faculty, but had a, a delightful about one-hour conversation with uh, Professor uh, Neil Plantinga about uh, social Trinitarianism, which uh, was wonderful. People have asked me uh, over the years, how did you, how do you have a mind, how did you get into a mindset to do this kind of thing? And as I've reflected, uh, it has a lot to do with how I was brought up and where I was brought up. I was born and reared in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That meant that most all of my friends were either Southern Baptist or Roman Catholic. There was a Mormon here and there, but not very many. Um, it, was a, it was a fascinating time. I, I think uh, an interesting time in the sense that I don't think I ever had a, uh, any kind of an argument about religion with my friends. They knew I was different. Uh, I knew they were different than I was. And uh, we would talk church things once in a while. But I, I think it never would have occurred to my friends to say, well, yeah, Bob is a Mormon. He's not a Christian. Part of the reason for that is that's a fairly recent phenomenon. That, didn't, that idea didn't become uh, something that you heard very often until about the 1970s, 1980s. But I came to know something about what it's like to be in the minority. 
My family and I, when I was in about the sixth grade, moved to a very small community in southern, the southern part of Louisiana, not far from the Gulf Coast. Uh, it was a community that was about 95, 96% Roman Catholic. I remember being a very nervous sixth grader going to, to class that first day. My teacher, uh, Mrs. Tomplay, uh, began the class by saying, okay, but before we, before we do anything else, I need to know first, is there anyone here who's not Roman Catholic? And I thought, oh my gosh, are we going to face this already? Um, and so I sat there sweating and wondering what I should do. And, and she asked again, anyone, is there anyone? And I was saved by the fact that there was a little fellow on the other side of the room, blonde kid, who very timidly raised his hand. And she said, yes, what are you? He said, I'm a Baptist. And she said, hmm. I thought that's the way he responds, she responds to a Baptist. What's she going to do with a Mormon? <laughs> Finally, I felt I had to say something, and she said, And you? What are you? My faith failed me, and I said, I'm a Baptist too. Now, my dear evangelical friends love me telling that story, and then they say, you see how God's had his hand on him all along. <laughs> it was deeper than association and friendship. It was also a matter of the fact that my mother was, was raised Methodist, that uh, many of my cousins were either Baptist or some of my cousins were Pentecostal holiness. My, uh, one of my cousins was, in fact, for, for a number of years, an associate pastor with Jimmy Swaggart. So uh, that's the background. That's what I come from, as far back as I can remember. My father was raised LDS, I was raised LDS, but I remember watching Billy Graham Crusades. Dad loved Billy Graham. And so I, I grew up with that. I had some feel of what it was like to be in the minority, and I had some feel for what it was like to be tolerant of people's beliefs that were different than my own. Years passed. At about the time I was, I joined the BYU Religion Faculty in 1983. In 1991, I was appointed as Dean of Religious Education. We have a religion faculty of about 80 and a school of about 30,000. And uh, I was asked to oversee religion. And I visited with one of the church leaders, one of the senior church leaders, uh, to express my nervousness and uh, to uh, ask for his counsel. We talked for about 30 minutes, but at least three times in our visit, he turned to me and he said, Bob, you must find ways to build bridges of friendship with those of other faiths. And then he would talk a little while and he'd say, Bob, let me say again, you must find ways to reach out and build friendships with those who believe differently. Later in the meeting, as we're about to close, he said, let me, let me just say that again. You must, and, I, and I had it at this point. Uh, that weighed on me. I wasn't sure how I was going to do that. Uh, it began, I thought, what if, what if I went and visited other church schools? The first one I visited was Notre Dame. I took my associate dean with me. We went and spent a week, a delightful week, at Notre Dame. 
Um, we talked with faculty, we talked with staff, we talked with students. Exploring, exploring, in this case, we were exploring what academic freedom was like at Notre Dame. BYU at the time was in some serious discussions about academic freedom. But went on then after that to visit Wheaton, to visit Baylor, to visit a number of religious schools, and in the process began to make friends. In 1997, not long after uh, an important book came out that, uh, that uh, Rich alluded to, but written by Craig Blomberg, professor of, of uh, New Testament at Denver Seminary, and Stephen Robinson, a professor of religion at BYU, entitled How Wide the Divide. A uh, fascinating book. Became, in fact, it was listed as one of the 25 most important books of that year. As a result of that, uh, Craig Blomberg in particular wanted to do some follow-up. At the same time, at about the same time, I happened to become acquainted with a Baptist pastor in our area. We developed a quick friendship. We went to lunch probably once a month, and this wasn't like any lunch I'd ever had. This was a, a lunch in which we had lengthy discussions, lengthy theological discussions. Uh, to, to make the dynamic even more interesting, my, my Baptist pastor friend uh, had been raised Latter-day Saint. And so we had long conversations, and we, we still do. That was, uh, again, beginning in 1997. At a certain point, uh, after we'd known each other a year or so, we received an interesting invitation. An Episcopalian minister from Park City, Utah, asked us if we'd be willing to come up and just chat with his congregation about how in the world an evangelical and a Latter-day Saint can get along. We did that. It was, in fact, it was billed as a Mormon and an evangelical in conversation. Uh, the second one was an interesting one. Uh, we were invited soon thereafter to go to Utah State University in Logan, Utah, and to do something similar. In preparation for that, there was quite a bit of, of publicity, and the local student newspaper had an article, and the title of the article was, A Mormon and an Evangelical in Conversion. <laughs> and so we had a huge crowd that night. <laughs> Uh, they wanted to find out who had, who had taken the, the leap. Long story short is uh, over the next 10, 11 years, my friend and I traveled all over America, England, Canada, some 63 times having this conversation in which we were trying to, to capitalize upon the, the wonderful concept that Dr. Mao uh, not only is written about, but personifies that of convicted civility. At a certain point, my pastor friend said to me, do you think we ought to consider broadening this conversation? And that was about exactly the same time that Craig Blomberg said to Richard Mao, should we broaden this conversation? And so the dialogues began in 2000. We've now met 23 times. Um, and had some delightful conversations on grace and works, as, as Rich said, on authority, on scripture, on deification, on trinity slash Godhead, and, and have just 
developed some remarkable, remarkable friendships. Now, to be sure, we don't agree on some things, some pretty important things. I think some of us would call them eternally important things. But there's been enough serious curiosity, enough serious interest, and enough, enough empathy that uh, our conversations have become non-threatening. Uh, they've become the kind where we can be candid, where we can say behind closed doors what we might not say publicly while we're still exploring that subject. I've thought about what some of the results of the dialogue are. Um, one that comes to mind, beginning at the time that I met with this church leader and he encouraged me three times to reach out, I began a, a reading program. I've since then read hundreds of volumes of Christian history and Christian theology, and particularly evangelical theology. It has been a, a magnificent learning experience. When I added to that the dialogues, the conversations, conversations in person, conversations over the phone, conversations by email about different theological matters, it has been a tremendous learning experience. Now linked with that, I, I've often said to people, I have learned a ton about Christian history and Christian theology, but in the process, and this is an important point, I've learned half a ton about Mormonism. Why? You can't seriously and genuinely discuss another person's thought, beliefs, way of life without it in some way causing you to reflect on, consider carefully your own. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful for what I've learned about my own faith. An unanticipated result of the dialogue was this. I began not, not only noticing among our group that we got along well and we loved each other, we prayed together, we ate together, we, we traveled together, and we had remarkable conversations, but I began noticing too that we began, groups of us, one, one here and there, one there, began having occasions where we felt a sense of responsibility for one another. Now, what do I mean by that? I was teaching a rather large class one semester at BYU, and uh, in about the middle of the class, a young man in the back raised his hand, and he was a returned missionary, and he said, Oh, you know how those born-againers are. And then he said, they believe that once you've been saved, you can live any way you want to live. And I thought, and the first thought I had was, I cannot let this pass. I said, can we talk about that for a minute? He said, uh, sure. And, and it was a fascinating little conversation. I said, well, let me ask you, um, is the doctrine of spiritual rebirth, the new birth, is that a, is that a true concept? Yes. Is it something that's scriptural? Oh, yeah. Is it something we'd find not only in the Bible, but perhaps in the Book of Mormon? Well, yeah, sure. Would you say that being born again is required for salvation? Absolutely, he said. I said, then I guess the $64 question is, have you been born again? He said, I think I have, yes. I said, well, wouldn't that sort of make you a born-againer? He said, I've never thought of myself as a born-againer. I, I think you ought to start thinking of yourself as a born-againer. And then I said, can I sharpen slightly what you said about what they believe? Sure. And went on to talk about that. 
If I've had that experience once, I've had it 50 times, where it's been a great privilege for me in class when a person asks a question, maybe even saying something disrespectful, unkind, about another religious group to be able to say, I know we're, we differ on that, but can, I at least, can we at least disagree on the right stuff? Can we at least get it accurate as to what they really believe? Because you know they don't really believe that. As I indicated, empathy has been something that has been important through, this, through all of this. Um, John Stackhouse, years ago, wrote a book, Humble Apologetics. A couple of points he made that really touched me deeply. One of them, he said, I don't think God cares a great deal for truth in the abstract. To illustrate that point, he said, for example, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make a point. He died on the cross because he loves us. Later in the same book, John said, the kind of interfaith dialogue that is deep and profound can only take place if there's enough empathy on the part of participants that they begin to ask really hard questions like this, is it conceivable that this might be true? Can I picture myself believing that or considering that seriously? And I think what we've enjoyed in the last 12 or 13 years has been people deeply devout in their own faith, but taking very seriously the fact that they just might be able to learn something from a person of another faith. In the year uh, 1997, a very interesting, important year, it was the same year I bought a copy. I was down in Louisiana and went into the Christian bookstore that I always frequent and uh, bought a copy of Billy Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am. As you know, it's a rather large volume. It took a while to get through it, but I loved it. I remember one Sunday evening finishing the last page, being extremely emotional. And letting out with a, wow. My wife said, what is it? I said, well, I just finished the book. She said, well, what's the wow? I said, what a life. She said, what do you mean? I said, here we have this simple North Carolina preacher that God takes and makes a major instrument in his hand. Uh, and I, I was overwhelmed with the spirit, the realization that God works through men and women of many persuasions in ways you and I can't always appreciate or comprehend. That experience and others like it have had a, have had a profound impact on me, broadening my perspective. Years ago, Christer Stendhal, who, at the, who for years served as dean of the Harvard Divinity School, uh, when he retired from that assignment a few years later, was appointed as bishop uh, of the Lutheran Church in Sweden. It was during that time that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announced that they were going to build a temple in Stockholm. And as often the case, there was much uproar, tremendous opposition, and uh, the, the anti-Mormon propaganda began to, to grow in volume. 
In the midst of all of that, Christer Stendhal summoned a press conference. He stood up and he said, uh, you know, we don't agree with everything that the Mormons believe. He went on to say, but my goodness, these people believe clearly in life hereafter that comes only through Jesus Christ, and they take this seriously, so much so that they believe in marriages that can go on and on. After he, after he kind of scolded his folks a bit, he said, you know, if you really want to understand somebody of another faith, he said, may I make a few suggestions? One, he said, if you have a question, go to a, a, uh, a member of their faith who is somewhat knowledgeable, practicing, active member of that faith. Ask them. Two, and it's the one that Richard mentioned, if you must compare, compare their best with your best. And then he said third, and this is one of my favorites, he said, always leave room for holy envy. That's a fascinating concept, holy envy. Through this all, I have come away envious of many, so many things about evangelical society, about evangelical people, about evangelical theology, not the least of which is the tremendous love for, adoration of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so this has been a great and a marvelous enterprise, and we're excited that it's just beginning. Thank you. All right, we have some time for questions and answers. Uh, if you have a question card that you've filled out and would like to have it collected, feel free to hold that up and ushers will uh, come and collect those. Um, as uh, President Leroy said, we did get some questions already by email, so I'll start with the one that he was referencing. And uh, Bob, this one's for you. Um, the, and I'm a Mormon TV commercials and videos on YouTube have become very widespread, especially for the younger generation that uses YouTube a lot and seem to be having a large part in shaping this generation's view of Mormons. How did this campaign come about and what was the original intent to educate people, make converts or something else altogether? While the church maintains a strict political neutrality, four years ago when Mitt Romney was, was thinking of running for the presidency, a series of studies were done, one by the Pew uh, Foundation, assessing what people knew about Mormons and what they didn't know. And, and there was a phrase that became, that was used again and again, there was what people outside our faith called the weirdness factor of Mormonism. <laughs> it was at that point that the church leader said, you know, we really aren't that weird. Uh, <laughs> Why don't we say that? The purpose of the commercials, as it were, and they're not just on the radio and television. If, you, if you're in New York City, they're on, they're on the buses. Uh, my mother down in Louisiana called me long distance. Son, there's a problem. What's the problem, mother? There, there's something going on here. I'm really nervous about it. I think there's some people after us. <laughs> what are they doing? Well, they've got these, these things uh, on the buses saying, I'm a Mormon. I said, Mom, that's us. <laughs> I think it was intended to say, look, we may have religious differences in terms of theology. We're just normal people. Mm -hmm. I, I, we, we surf. 
we, we ride motorcycles, etc. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, thanks. Now we have a question that's also been emailed from a Calvin student. Uh, why do Christians called to live in peace of God seem to have so much fear of other religions? Well, I think, uh, you know, part of it is the, the genuine concern that uh, we will compromise, that we'll water down our faith. I think we, both Mormons and evangelicals, certainly Calvinists in this community, are very concerned that we, uh, we, we, we do believe deeply in certain things that are of eternal importance. And the minute we start getting into negotiating these things and uh, uh, absorbing ideas from other perspectives that we're going to move in the direction of relativism. And I, I think that is a genuine concern. I think when a lot of people hear the phrase interfaith relations or an interfaith dialogue, they think of the word ecumenism as it was used in the 1960s, which often resulted in a kind of theological dilution, yeah. a watering down. All right, if you get rid of the Trinity, I'll get rid of baptism for the dead. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and you know, and, and this is important, you know, George Marsden once said that when evangelicals moved from the 19th to the 20th century, it was like an immigration experience, except it was a spiritual immigration and not a geographic immigration. And that is, we, we, we had, up, up well into the 19th century, had thought of ourselves as sort of owning the culture. You know, this is America the beautiful, this is God's chosen people. Move into the 20th century, and more and more we saw ourselves on the margins and it was very important for us to protect ourselves and to emphasize the ways in which we disagreed with the dominant culture. Mormonism has been a, a persecuted religion. I mean, whatever you folks think about Mormonism, it was wrong to kill them. Uh, it was certainly wrong to uh, drive them out of cities and, and the like. And so uh, a marginalized people, and this was true of this Grand Rapids community for a long time as well, uh, defining ourselves over against and uh, we're at a point now where I think both Mormons and evangelicals have a wonderful opportunity to have an impact on the culture which desperately needs the kind of shared values that, that, that we have. And, uh, and we, we need to have, engage in what Francis Schaeffer always called co-belligerence. Uh, we, we need to find ways in which we can work together for certain kinds of causes. And, uh, so I think as we, we think about our impact on the culture in a positive way, rather than protecting ourselves from the dominant culture, uh, there's a different mood about uh, cooperation and uh, mutual understanding. Great. We have a question that came in on Twitter and it's questioning, how do uh, Mormons view the church as it was between the ascension of Jesus and the revelation of John Smith? Yeah, good question. Let me ask it now. <laughs> Whatever he says, he's going to lie about it, so. Uh. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> First time ever. <laughs> so restating the question, what do Latter-day Saints believe about uh, the Christian church from the time of Jesus' ascension? To when? Here. To, till, to, to the present? Um, till the revelation of John Smith. Yeah. Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, yes. I said, John Smith. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't aware that John Smith and Pocahontas had a revelation. <laughs> so he doesn't want to answer the question. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, now, now, what do you think of the Reformation, for example? I mean, well, 
let's say it this way. Latter-day Saints believe that following the death of the apostles, that eventually what was lost was divine priesthood authority, the authority to act in the name of God, the authority to, to officiate properly in the sacraments of the church, the authority to oversee the church, and to, for example, to, to uh, adjudicate on doctrinal matters. We believe that divine, we don't believe that Christianity was lost. We don't believe, in other words, we believe that, that important parts of Christianity continued, but we believe very strongly that divine authority was lost. Thus, the restoration becomes a restoration not just of, tr of doctrinal truths, but of priesthood authority, apostolic authority. Now, Rich's question, the Reformation, we hold the Martin Luthers and John Calvins and, and uh, uh, Swingleys and, and so forth in high esteem and high regard uh, because we, we clearly see that they were acting by divine inspiration in bringing about uh, an adjustment, a major adjustment to a mother church that we feel had gone off course. Uh, and this is another question for you from the audience here. Uh, how does uh, the LDS um, understand... Um, I'll repeat the question. Go ahead. <laughs> how does the LDS understand um, salvation is by grace? How do the Latter-day Saints understand that salvation is by grace? You don't travel very far. Obviously, we could talk about this from the New Testament, particularly from Romans or Galatians, but let's do this. You don't travel very far into the Book of Mormon before you begin coming across the fact you get lines like this, since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself. Or you come across lines that, like this, salvation comes only through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. Or you have a statement like this, salvation is free. Now, what, what does that mean? Latter-day Saints are very conscious of works, of good works. But as, as Rich has suggested, the, it's the question of the proper place. There is no question about it that if salvation is a gift of God, in fact, in our Doctrine and Covenants, it's called the greatest of all the gifts of God, that if it's a gift, you don't earn it because you don't earn gifts. comes wages then. Yeah. Yeah. The issue then becomes what is the appropriate place of works. My expression of gratitude to God for what has been given to me in the form of forgiveness and cleansing and purpose and perspective in life is shown in the extent to which I try to be a disciple, to the extent that I keep God's commandments. Yeah, let me just push you on that because I, I know your answer, but I, I think it would be good to... Well, if you know my answer, why are you asking? Well, because I'm... <laughs> Uh, we, we put together, uh, in addition to our dialogue, we put together a large student conference of, uh, in Salt Lake City of students from Brigham Young University, Wheaton College, Biola University, uh, Fuller Pacific. Seminary, and Azusa Pacific. And, uh, and then we had both evangelical and Mormon folks from our dialogues uh, give talks about understanding each other. And uh, one of the wonderful scholars at Brigham Young, Camille Franck, uh, she... Uh, she, she said, uh, and, and it was a gripping comment, uh, she said, uh, I want to be very clear about the fact that as a Mormon, I believe that my salvation is totally dependent on the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, 
and that my good works are a response, a, gr a, a grateful response to what God has done for me that I could not do for myself. Well, that was pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, we had student discussion groups after, and a full, afterward, and a Fuller Seminary student told me that at one point, a, 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 an evangelical student, I think from Biola, said to a, a, a BYU student, I didn't know you folks believed that. And the BYU student said, I didn't know we believed that either. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, think, I think it's important for Bob to say, why? I mean, that, that's a reality. Why is that? What's going on there? Now, this is over at 3.30. <laughs> <laughs> It isn't, that, it isn't that, that Latter-day Saints didn't believe in Christ as the central figure of salvation or in salvation by grace from the very beginning. We did. But from the earliest times of Mormonism, especially when President Brigham Young takes the Latter-day Saints across the plains and establishes them in the Great Basin, the church began, and this is not uncommon as Rich suggested in religious groups, the church began to identify itself as over against other, other religious groups. So that if, if uh, your emphasis is just grace, 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 ours becomes works, works, works. Now, theologically speaking, it was clear from our own text that salvation came by grace. But there grew up what I would call a kind of a, a folklore, uh, a, kind of a, shallow, a kind of shallow thinking. Uh, of course works are important in the sense that when, when kids push me and say, well, do you think works are essential? I'll say, listen, I'm going to surprise you by saying, yes, they are, because in my view, if you're not doing the works of righteousness, then you're not, you haven't really had a change of heart. That's what James says. Yeah. So um, what, you're, what you're seeing there is you're seeing that in the last 30 years, there has been a, a, particular, a particularly strong emphasis upon redemptive theology. Not because not we want to make a good impression. It's been there all along. It's just that there's been not a change in doctrine, but perhaps a change in emphasis, yeah. a greater focus. And, and I would say that that, two quick reasons why that happened. One, back in the 1970s, the church began, church-wide, uh, a serious study of Scripture so that we spent one full year in Sunday school poring over the Old Testament, one year studying uh, the New Testament, and so forth, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. I can tell you that having been at Brigham Young University for 30 years now, th this is my 30th year, I had some pretty impressive kids when I first came there in 1983. The young people I teach now, I can say it this way, I think they're 10 times more scripturally literate than the kids I had 30 years ago. Now, what, what's happening, in other words, is we're, we're seeing a people who are, who are more immersed in Scripture. They, they, they have the learning and the language and the logic of Scripture in their heads and their hearts, and so you're reflecting that. But secondly, and, that, and this gets back to Ezra Taft Benson. When Ezra Taft Benson became president of the LDS Church um, in 1985, he, it became very clear what his emphasis was going to be. He began pushing hard for the Latter-day Saints to return to the Book of Mormon to study it as never before. And it was a strong push for nine years. We were, he didn't, he said, now nah, that doesn't release you from studying the Old Testament, the New Testament. 
you need to be spending some time with the Book of Mormon. Now, whether a person accepts the historicity of the Book of Mormon, accepts Joseph Smith's story of how it came, golden plates, angels, is not important right here. Why? What I'm saying is you don't get very far into the Book of Mormon before you realize this is filled with redemptive theology. An immersion in that for nine years is going to create a people who are much more redemptive in their thinking. We make uh, on the evangelicals. Bob doesn't exact uh, doesn't exactly endorse this three-part distinction, but uh, those of us who've been in, uh, intensely involved with our LDS friends make a distinction among three things. One is what we call the redemptive theology of the Book of Mormon, and if, and and I want to endorse what he just said that if you read the Book of Mormon and forget about whether you know about the golden plates and all the rest. Uh, the theology of the Book of Mormon uh, sounds very uh, evangelical in a kind of Wesleyan sense, uh, a revivalistic sense. Uh, secondly, uh, we, we, we talk about Temple Mormonism, which we don't know an awful lot about, but it's the rituals and the, the internal uh, uh, rites and rituals of Mormonism. And then thirdly, we talk about folk Mormonism. There's a lot of folk Mormonism. You know, I'm constantly getting it from my evangelical critics, and I have a lot of them, uh, and welcome some of them here today, I'm sure. Uh, but don't they believe? And then they, they quote what we call the Lorenzo Snow couplet. Uh, he'd been a president of the church at one point. Uh, what man now is, God once was. What God now is, man may become. And uh, that, that's not canonical. It's, it's, it's nowhere in the Mormon scriptures, is it? No. Uh, and so uh, people take that as the central kind of d- teaching of Mormonism. When Gordon Hinckley, the president of the Mormon Church, uh, the l- last time around, was asked by Time magazine about that, he said, I don't understand that. We, I used to hear that when I was, I was younger, but we don't, really, we, we, don't, we don't really talk about that anymore. Now, th- there's something there that uh, is a very important sociological fact about Mormon theology and that is, uh, we don't talk much about that anymore. Uh, he wasn't saying, I repudiate that. He was just saying, that's not at the center of things. That's off on the side. And uh, as you look at the history of Mormonism, at different stages, different things have been emphasized. And what we've clearly seen in, in recent years, I got two emails in one day. One saying, don't you know that these people believe that God has a human body and he was uh, once a, a human being like us? And, uh, and, and then another one, a, a, a person wrote to me within five minutes of getting that email saying, uh, you know, I really appreciate the way you've tried to understand us. And I just want to tell you that uh, you, you have it pretty well right. He said, uh, when I was being raised, we heard a lot about uh, our becoming gods and God was once like us. But on a week-to-week basis, what I hear in our Mormon services and in our Mormon teaching is that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And my life is, is a life of trying to be more Christ-like uh, by the power of the Spirit. And to me, uh, that, that's an important thing to acknowledge that uh, if, if we just say, unless you repudiate everything in your past, uh, we're not going to take you seriously. That's not going to happen. I was thinking, you mentioned this to the group earlier, but I think the larger group would appreciate the, the phone conversation. Yeah, I, I, I talk about this in my book. We were going to Nauvoo, which is where, the, where Joseph Smith was, was killed near, in the nearby Carthage jail. The Mormons were driven out of Nauvoo, Illinois, went to, uh, went to Utah. 
And uh, we were going to have a meeting in Nauvoo of the Evangelical Mormon group in the 70s hall, which is where Joseph Smith trained the first missionaries. And uh, I was asked to speak about where, where do I hope Mormonism will be 20 years from now? And Bob was asked to speak about where, where he hopes evangelicalism uh, would be 20 years from now. And, my, uh, my talk was longer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, I really prayed about it, I struggled with it. I didn't know what to say. Uh, and, um, and I got a phone call. My secretary came in and says, a guy on the phone, he says he really needs to talk to you. He's a Mormon. He's not, not going to argue with you. He just says this. It's your question. So I said, sure, I'll talk to him. And he said to me, uh, Dr. Mayo, I, I, I'm a Mormon, and, and I want to ask you a very simple question. Do you think I'm a Christian? And I said, well, let me ask you some questions. Are you ever going to become a God worthy of worship? And he said, no, that's, not, that's no, I, not the way I understand that stuff. He said, God is God, and he alone is worthy of worship. And my job is to be, grow more and more into what God wants me to be. And I said, um, and, and how do you get to the point where God, you are what God wants you to be? And he said, only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary. And I said, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and what, what role does good works have? So and he gave the line that we just had, you know, uh, my response to what God has said. And he told me a story. He'd been raised a liberal Methodist. And he said, I, I'm a, I think you'll understand this well. I never heard the gospel. And he said, I had a roommate at Stanford who was a Mormon. The end result of it was I became a Mormon. I've been a Mormon now for 10 or 15 years. And, uh, and, and so then I asked him those questions. He gave me those answers. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. If anybody called me out of the blue and they told me that God and God alone, the God of the Bible, is worthy of worship. Secondly, that you're a sinner who needs to be saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and that it isn't your good works that contribute to your salvation, but they're only a response to what God has done for you. If anybody gave those answers, I'd say, yeah, you're a Christian. So I'm going to say, yeah, you're a Christian. He said, well, let me give you a, 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 one more question. And he said, should I leave Mormonism? And I said, no, stay there and keep saying those things. And if they don't let you say those things, then you leave. But keep saying the, those things, you know. So when we gathered in the 70s hall in Nauvoo, I told, those story, I told that story. And there must have been about 10 Mormon, Mormons there that night uh, as a part of our group. And we were there for several days. And, and in the next, the next part of our time there, every one of them came to me privately and said, that's where I hope Mormonism will be 20 years from now, with, with those answers to those questions. And I, I want to say I praise God for that. And uh, I think this dialogue that we're engaged in uh, is one that's long overdue, and it's one that uh, I think God is at work. And, and Bob and I have prayed together about this, and we both feel that the Lord's hand has been upon this and that uh, new things will happen. Okay, thank I you. I have something to say. <laughs> Last Amen. word Amen. from, yeah. Oh, good. All right, well, Rich no, and Bob will be in the lobby <laughs> afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.